Hello, and welcome to another audio version of Burnt Toast. I'm Virginia Soul-Smith. I am an author of The Eating Instinct. I don't have my bio in front of me, so now I have to say what I am without remembering it. <laughs> um, I am the author of The Eating Instinct, Body Club. Nope, see, I can't do my, sub- my own subtitle. Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And I write this newsletter where we explore questions about fat phobia and diet culture and parenting. And today I am chatting with my good friend, my neighbor, um, and I guess coworker, like work friend person, <laughs> uh, Melinda Wenner-Moyer. Melinda, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So for folks who don't know Melinda, she is a science journalist. She is the author of a brand new book that is coming out just a couple days from when you listen to this um, called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. I got it right. (laughs) Got your book title right, not my own. (laughs) And she raised a really fantastic substack called Is My Kid the Asshole? Um, Much like the Reddit thread of Am I the Asshole? uh, Where she helps us navigate these really tricky parenting questions. And I wanted to bring her on today because A, the book is wonderful and you should all go pre-order it and get it, you know, in your mailbox in the next couple of days. Um, but Melinda does a really great job of breaking down the science on parenting to help us understand why our kids do the things they do and how sort of the choices we make influence their behavior and this whole intersection. And I found as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, oh, this is also about food. Oh, this is also about food. So Melinda's actually the first person I've had on the newsletter who's not fully in the sort of uh, diet culture space, not that you're a pro-diet culture person, but um, but it's cool to see someone else's work in a slightly different genre overlapping so much with the conversations we have. Um, so the book is really doing two things. You know, I'm sure you're getting all kinds of reactions to the title. Um, it was a great opportunity to teach my own seven-year-old the word asshole. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, you're welcome. Uh, but really what you're saying is, you know, parents need to understand that sometimes kids have to be assholes, right? It's like part of growing up. They don't have the skills that we think that they have, and they're just are going to be assholes sometimes. But at the same time, you're responding to, you know, things that are happening in our culture at large and really wanting to help parents raise kids who don't grow up to be permanent assholes in the sense of Donald Trump or Brent Kavanaugh. So can you explain that distinction a little bit and just, you know, talk a little bit about how you think of this concept? Yes, absolutely. So, yes, there has been understandable confusion about the title and what I actually mean by how to raise kids who aren't assholes. Um, and so, yes, what I'm really saying is how to raise kids who don't grow up to be assholes, because I think as parents, it's really important for us to manage our expectations and to realize that there is no such thing as a like perfectly behaved kid. And there are so many reasons for this. Um, so one kids' brains and bodies are so very different from ours. Um, The part of the brain that is responsible for planning and self-regulation and like rational thinking in general is just not developed yet. And it doesn't fully develop until kids are in their mid-20s, actually. Um, So kids just don't have the skills, like you said, to do adult-like things, um, like follow directions or stay calm when they're sad or angry. They also don't have like the muscle tone to do things like sit still at the dinner table for 30 minutes, which I learned when I was reporting my newsletter a few weeks ago. Um, so they're going to be doing things all the time that are out of line with what we would expect of adults and what we kind of consider, quote unquote, good behavior. 
And that's because they really just don't have the capacity for those things yet. So yes, kids are going to be assholes. Um, and I mean, another really big part of that too, is that like what we consider good behavior is learned a lot of it. It's not innate and it's based on customs and traditions. And so, you know, these are like cultural expectations that we have to teach over time and it takes a long time. So for instance, what could be more unnatural than using a fork? It's like the weirdest. I mean, if you think about it, right? Like, of course, our kids are not born knowing how to use a fork and take 10 years to learn how because, or napkins, like that's also kind of a weird concept. Mm -hmm. Like why not use your hands and like, um, so yeah, exactly. Like these are, these are customs. We have to remember that like they are not natural and, um, and the way that kids, that kids learn about these kinds of customs is in a way by breaking them. Like they have to, they have to break the rules in order for us to know that we need to teach these things to them. They're like yes. opportunities for us as parents to learn about what we need to work on with our kids. So like, I'm thinking of the first time I remember I was visiting my parents and they live in this like very like posh community. And we, my, my son got out, I think he was going to like a tennis clinic or something. Uh, and um, that's a whole nother thing. Um, and <laughs> the tennis pro came over. He was like six and held out his hand to shake my son's hand. And I had not taught my kid at that point, like what handshakes were. And so he like looked at this tennis pro's hand and just like made a face and like ran away. <laughs> and of course, like to the tennis pro, my kid is like a total asshole, right? Like what could be more assholeish than that? But I mean, these are, I hadn't taught well, him. How would was, he I know? Mean, yeah. How would he know what yeah. to do in that situation? Like they need practice. And of course too, like in situations like that, temperament matters and, and other like traits mm-hmm. and differences that kids have, like circumstances matter. So with kids not being polite to adults in social situations, not looking them in the eye and not answering their questions, so much of that can stem from fear and anxiety too. Like right. even if they know what to do, right, even right. if we talk to them about what we expect, like they are so, they just don't have the capacity to function in the way we want them to. Shy kids, you know, are just going to struggle more with those kinds of skills. So, so I think we also have to remember um, there's so much like variation among kids that make them excel in certain areas and be deficient in others. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all have different starting points. So when mm-hmm. we see like two different seven-year-olds, behaving very differently in a situation. Like we don't, we shouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that like, oh shit, my kid was more of an asshole than that right, other kid. Right, and right. therefore I'm failing as a parent. Um, we just have to remember like where our kids are coming from. There was a very salient example of this actually yesterday. My um, daughter's turning seven on Saturday and we had a really small gathering with just four of her friends yesterday in the backyard. And some of the friends were from like one school and some of the friends were from another school and they didn't all know each other really well. Mm. And there was a moment where one of the kids was feeling left out. And I was really hoping like my daughter would step up and sort of go out of her way to be extra kind to this girl who was feeling left out. And what happened was another girl stepped up and like did this wonderful thing and helped Mm. this girl feel included. And it was not my daughter. And I was like, oh my God, why? Like I, I felt like, like I failed as a parent, like, why isn't my daughter the one doing this? But then I realized, okay, this is her birthday party. She's been mm-hmm. so anxious about it for like mm-hmm. two weeks. Mm-hmm. She's, she hates being in the spot. Like she, she's like, she's got so much on her emotional plate that day. I shouldn't feel bad that she couldn't step up and do this. She's like, probably really not even thing. noticing the other kids. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like, she's in her anyway. own thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like all these circumstances matter. So anyway, I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but I guess what I'm getting at is like, there's so much 
that shapes like the day-to-day choices that our kids make that that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about our kids and how they're behaving. But with the book, what I'm really trying to do is I'm like thinking bigger and broader than these like little bloopers and really thinking about how can we instill values and virtues in our kids that will shape their their choices and behaviors for the rest of their lives. Like mm. they can make plenty of mistakes now, but it's like, how do we help them learn from them? How do we instill the kinds of priorities that we want them to have? Like, it's not so much, how do I make sure that my five-year-old doesn't have tantrums? It's how to make sure that my five-year-old doesn't grow up to be a 75-year-old man who throws tantrums right. like Donald Trump, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so how do I give yes. them the skills to develop, you know, emotional regulation and all of these other things so that over time they become adults who are like kind, good people who are fighting injustice instead of contributing to it. So that's like the, it's like a bigger picture yes. thing that I'm working on with the book. Well, and it's reassuring because I think anyone who is parenting young children has moments or days or weeks where you think like, I am raising a legitimate sociopath. Like they have no <laughs> compassion or awareness of other people. You know, kids do say that, you know, and you get into like in your chapters on racism and sexism, like kids say really awful things. Um, This comes up a lot when we talk about bodies, kids, you know, call their kids fat or use that word as an insult. Sometimes they don't even understand they're using it as an insult. So I think it's helpful to understand that like, this is part of the learning and this is where the work is. This isn't like damning your kid to this, you know, dark future of, of being an unproductive member of society who could be president someday. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I think that's really helpful, but to also know that like, we do have to do that work when we do. And your book does a great job of giving parents tools to navigate those conversations. Um, so one area I found especially fascinating and that sort of intersects a lot with questions my readers often have is the way you wrote about rewards and how, you know, rewards can often be short-term fixes for behavior problems, but sometimes they can hinder some of our bigger goals as parents. And I get this question very often because food is so commonly used as a reward. You know, we're giving M&Ms for potty training or teachers give out Starburst, you know, Starburst or other candy in class for good behavior. Um, and, you know, from where I'm sitting as someone who's concerned about kids overly fixating on different foods or giving too much value to foods, like there's reasons to be worried about rewards. Um, but you, you know, sort of delved into that whole topic so deeply. So first, why don't you tell us how you initially used rewards with your own kids and then, you know, how your thinking evolved on that question? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a big issue and it's gnarly. <laughs> um, so yeah, my, um, when my now 10 year old was maybe like six or something, we were struggling with some of his behavior and we went to see a psychologist who was, um, really like firmly in the like behavioral psychology camp, which is essentially to say like, he really likes to use rewards. And so he suggested that we set up this system with our son where it was like a points system. And anytime our son did something that we thought was good or pro-social, like he said, please, or thank you, or he helped his sister, or he like cleaned his room, really anything in that moment that he did it right afterwards, we would say like, oh, two points for picking up that piece of trash and putting it in the trash can. And every point that he would get, like we would keep track of it on a spreadsheet and every point equated um, or 
uh, turned into like one cent or one minute of screen time. And mm-hmm. so then we added it up and like every week, if he'd gotten, you know, a hundred points, he would have a hundred minutes of screen time. I can't remember exactly how it, like how many points he would get over a week. Um, and, but it, it helped us control his allowance, his screen time and was supposed to be like a behavior management system. And, and at first it was great. Like it, because it did seem to solve these problems that we had, like we didn't know how to deal with allowance. We didn't know how to deal with screen time. And so it was this really nice system for like organizing all this stuff. And he really did, his behavior started to improve immediately. Um, and we saw him like doing stuff that he hadn't been doing. That was really, you know, pro-social and great and kind. Um, and, then we, I can't remember how long we used it for, like at least a year, maybe longer. And we did start to then see some like ickiness surrounding it where <laughs> he would like, you could see the wheels turning in his head and he would think about doing something good or kind or something. And then he would stop and say, well, I get points for doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and it became like this contingency thing where he's like only going to do it if he would get right. points. And we're like, wait, that's not the values. Was that not really the goal. To. Yeah. No. And, and I started digging into the research more. So originally I had read some of the research on rewards and I wrote a slate column about it. And I was really under the impression that like, you know, rewards, if you use them too much and in, in situations where you're rewarding kids for doing things they already like, like that's not generally a good idea, but that, but that it was really fine to use rewards to motivate them to do things they didn't like. And then again, as this point system, as we used it longer and longer, I got more skeptical. I started really digging into the research more for the book too. And I started reading like all of the studies that were being done on rewards back from the 1970s even. And that's when I was like, hmm, I think we need to stop this point system because mm-hmm. I was seeing like, I'll, I'll describe one study for instance, there are a ton of studies like this um, that suggests that when kids are given rewards for doing things, it makes them feel controlled and manipulated. Cause I mean, that's essentially what we're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, they get that they, they know they're being controlled and they don't like it. I mean, just like we don't like being controlled and manipulated. They don't like it. And it kind of like removes the intrinsic value of the thing that we have rewarded them for doing so that like it gets tied so inextricably tied to the feeling of being controlled that they don't really like it anymore f- for itself. Like if they got, you know, the joy that you get out of being generous to someone and making them feel better, like they couldn't get that kind of intrinsic satisfaction out of doing good things anymore because it was so tied up with the reward they were getting. Um, So for instance, this one study um, illustrated this really well. So researchers put drawing paper and markers in a preschool classroom and watched all the kids in the preschool classroom um, to see whether they drew with the markers. I think they had like other activities they could do. And then the kids that they saw really generally liked using, liked drawing. Um, the next week, they pulled those particular students out one by one and brought them into another room. And for some of them, they offered the kids a reward for drawing. They said, okay, mm. if you draw this, we'll give you, I don't remember what it, what it was exactly. It could have been food. Um, and for other kids, they just said, here's some drawing materials. If you want to draw, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. And... Um, so like half of them were given rewards, half of them weren't. And then the third week of the study, they repeated the first part. They just had all the kids in a room with drawing paper and markers out. And they saw that the kids who had been offered rewards for drawing in the second part of the study were much less likely to want to draw 
in that third week compared to the kids who hadn't been offered any rewards. So it was like, once they had been rewarded for it, they were just then much less interested in doing it when they were given the opportunity to do it. And there's been research in adults that has shown this same pattern. So yeah, it's, it, for whatever reason, it just like sucks out the, whatever sort of value that behavior had to the child inside, like deep inside of them, whatever value they got out of doing that thing. Um, and like just took it away, which is of course the exact opposite of what we're wanting, what we're doing, what we're trying to, what the outcome that we're trying to create when we use rewards. So it's, it's there's a a great food study that's shown that too, that I feel like I reference in practically every article I write, but I'll recap here. It's the finisher soup study by Leanne Birch, where when they, you know, told some kids, if you finish your soup, you get dessert. And then they had other kids, like you can have as much soup as you want and you can have as much dessert as you want. The kids who had to finish the soup, you know, and were like, it wasn't about rewards, I guess they had to earn it, but it still is a reward. The dessert was the reward. They liked the soup less. They ate less of the soup and they really just cared about getting the dessert. Whereas the kids who were, you know, sort of freely choosing in between the soup and the dessert actually liked the soup better and ate more. So it's like, it's, it seems like it's cutting off kids' ability to find intrinsic motivation or intrinsic pleasure in activities at times or in foods. And, you know, parents might say like, well, they'll never like Brussels sprouts or whatever. But the truth is like, you kind of aren't even giving them the option to like them when you're setting them up as just currency, you know, just this thing you do to get to the better thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in that, maybe it was a different Leanne Birch study. It might've been the same one. There was like a part two where they were just having adults pressure the kids to eat soup. Like you really need, you know, you should eat. And again, that's like a controlling mm-hmm. impulse and, and the kids feel controlled and that the kids who were pressured to eat a particular soup ate less of it too yes. than the ones who were just yes. left alone. And that was really interesting too. It's like we're all related, right? The pressuring well, yeah. and the rewards. Cause they're really, I mean, positive pressure is still pressure and rewards are positive, but it's still a form, as you said, it's still a form of trying to control kids and, yeah, you know, especially around food, we know they do so much better when they can listen to themselves versus following these external rules. But it's interesting to see that replicated in, you know, in all these other things. And I liked that you highlighted in the book that, you know, even these sort of chores can be intrinsically satisfying. Like you can feel good to set the table or it can feel good to clean your room and realize like, oh, I like my room better when it's not, you know, covered in all of my clothes or whatever. <laughs> but we're not sort of giving kids that opportunity to experience that if we're just saying like clean your room in order to earn your points or whatever. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um yeah, you also talked about, um, you know, when we think about this, uh, this concern about making the rewards too valuable. Um, and again, we see this happen so much with food where kids are then much more interested in the treat food and don't want the other food. You know, I'm curious if you saw that happening with screen time as well, since that was sort of the primary thing you were using. It seems like there's some parallels. I often feel like there's a lot of parallel conversation happening around sugar and screen time with parents. Yeah, that's really an interesting. Um, observation. I, I agree. I mean, it's tricky. Like, I feel like my kids have never not been obsessed with screens. So I'm like, can I say there's been like a vast improvement since we stopped using the point system, especially because we have the pandemic to throw into the mix. Which totally. Like, totally. There's yeah. so much conflation, right? Um, so we relied on screens so much this past year, but yeah, I will say like, yeah, I mean, I, when we use screen time as a reward, like, I feel like there are two things that, I, that makes, makes me think of. One is it certainly led to just such a focus on screens. Like mm-hmm. every time my son did anything good and we gave him a point that, that made him think of screens, like, right. you know, right. it connected it with the screen. And, 
And, and so it just highlighted screens so much more, like at times when it was unnecessary to be highlighting screens. And so that's interesting. And I feel like that probably, that probably does lead to you know, fuel the sort of obsession and uh, with screens, if you're like constantly like making this connection in your head. Um, and then I, this also made me think about, there's a lot of research showing that like for kids look to the world around them and to adults in power to figure out how to behave, what to care about, like what's important, mm-hmm. what matters in the world. And I talk about this a lot actually in my chapters on sexism and racism, but mm-hmm. so they're constantly making these observations. And if we are choosing, we are making choices for them that communicate to our kids that there are certain things that everybody likes. That's like, they should like, like screens or like dessert. If we're choosing mm-hmm. that as the reward, that's a really powerful way of telling our kids what matters and what, you know, what they, they should care about too. Um, and so it's like, I mean, it's just, confirmation again right, to right. our kids that sweets and desserts are the things that they should be obsessed with because that's what everybody should and care about. if you're then pairing like this is the thing everybody cares about and we have lots of restrictions on how and when you access it and what yeah. you do to access it that is like a perfect storm of factors to set up a scarcity mindset which is going Absolutely. to make a kid more fixated on the sugar more fixated on the screen because they think of it as this thing that they have to you know, they have to be manipulated to acquire or they have to manipulate circumstances to acquire. And that's, yeah, I do feel like the pandemic threw a wrench in that theory a little bit because I feel like a lot of us had pretty much like no limitations on screen time and our kids still watch lots of screen time. So there's mm-hmm. obviously some nuances here, but right. I will say a story I often tell about that is when my older daughter spent several months in the hospital and had just like a Peppa Pig free for all, like we were watching Peppa Pig at three in the morning for weeks on end because she couldn't sleep in the hospital. And it was all like, what else do you do with a two-year-old in the hospital at three in the morning? We were convinced we had completely broken her and she would be like screen addicted forever. And when she got back to her normal routine at home, when she was healthier, she could play again. She could do other things. Like the screen thing really worked itself out without us having to, I, I was like, we'll have to detox her. It'll be this, you know, she was just like, oh, we don't watch Peppa Pig breakfast, lunch, and dinner anymore. Okay. You know, this is fine. Um, And I think I'm hoping we'll see a similar thing as people come out of lockdowns and kids get back to school and camp and normal routines that we can replace that with the other things that they love. And yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We're still in the experiment there for sure. <laughs> right. Yes. No, but I agree. I mean, we went on vacation last week and, um, and we just kind of created a whole new normal surrounding screens, like totally different from what the kids had had. And they were completely fine with it. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, because they, they're so adaptable and like we put them in a new situation and, and they recognize like not everything is going to be the same. We're not going to be able right. to use screens all the time. We're right. going to be swimming more. And they were perfectly fine with it. It was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can still, and I think if you had been like, this is going to be a completely screen-free vacation, you mm. might've gotten some pushback, but because yes. that would have fueled more of the scarcity thing, you know? But if it's like, we are adjusting our relationship with this thing, it can be, right? yeah, they can handle that. So, yeah. so interesting. Um, you know, the other context that I think about all of this a lot is physical activity. Um, and here I think we tend to use more pressure around wanting kids to play certain sports, wanting kids to be physically active. You know, there's certainly, I'm reporting my chapter on doctors at the moment for the next book. And, you know, this comes up a lot in the way doctors push physical activity and the sort of very prescriptive, like, is your kid getting an hour of exercise a day? And it's like, 
I mean, you just made exercise sound like the least fun thing (laughs) in the the world when you're like, is it 30 to 60 minutes? You know, like it's just, yeah, terrible. Um, you know, and that all feels very counterintuitive to me, but then on the other hand, like we want our kids to challenge themselves. We want them to like learn new skills. You know, one of my children loves rock climbing and, you know, when she's trying something, she'll say like, it hurts. And I'll be really quick to be like, oh, you don't have to do it then. Don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt your body. And she'll be like, no, no, I want to push through and like learn. And now I can do this cool trick. And I'm like, oh, right. There's also something satisfying in pushing yourself physically. And I want you to enjoy that as well. So I'm curious, you know, how you think about physical activity, like how do we, you know, encourage kids to push themselves, but not block the intrinsic motivation that feels really key to them finding movement joyful. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I I feel like I have a lot of like weird, like childhood memories that make it hard for me to be like totally unbiased answering this too, because I remember, (laughs) I mean, don't we all like my parents (laughs) made me play soccer when I was a kid and I hated it. Like I hated it so much. I felt so I was terrible at it. And, um, and like, I just remember being so ashamed that like, I kept, you know, not being good at it and letting down my team and my coach. And then what was so interesting too, was that, um, like, five years ago, I got my eyes checked by like a, a developmental optometrist who they just like do different kinds of eye tests and stuff. And he, he said, you know, and my eyes were crossed when I was a kid. And he said, you know, you don't have like any depth perception. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. And he said, yeah. He's like, did you find that you weren't very good at ball sports when you were a kid? And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> like, that's why I was so bad. And that's why I hated it so much. I literally like could not see the ball the way other kids did. And wow. it was so validating. And, but uh, yeah, but anyway, that's kind of like an aside, but I feel like, um, it's, it's still relevant. Yeah. Like forcing kids to do activities that they just don't like, or they know that they don't have the aptitude for is not necessarily constructive. I will say like, it depends on why they don't like the activity. So one thing that is coming to mind is like, if, if a child is like you were saying with your daughter that you were, you know, she was like feeling challenged by something and, I think a lot of kids sometimes don't want to do an activity because they're scared. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they've never done it before. It's new. It's scary. And, and sometimes like when kids have phobias or fears, you do want to expose them to the thing they're afraid of, you know, slowly, carefully, like to, to help them get over that fear or, to, right. you know, and understand it's not ex- that big. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if they're, so I think part of it is like figuring out what is their dislike rooted in? If it's, mm-hmm. if it's rooted in like fear of novelty or just fear in general, like sometimes it is good to push them out of their comfort zone and to help them, you know, learn, um, that they don't need to be afraid of it. But mm-hmm. if they're just like of an activity isn't rooted in fear, but just like they're not the, a lack of interest or they just don't enjoy it, then yeah, I, um, I think that that's not necessarily constructive. And so I was thinking a lot about, I'm thinking a lot about Angela Duckworth's advice, um, which, so she wrote um, a book grit and it's a really interesting book. And I talk a lot about it in um, one of my chapters and she talks about like the importance of, of push, not pushing, of encouraging your kids to try something that's fun and hard, but that they get to choose what it is. So they Mm -hmm. have some autonomy of choice there and, and having them stick with something for like a semester or a year before they can quit so that they do have to kind of, you know, get over any hurdles and stuff. But, but the key thing is like letting them choose it. And I think there are so many kinds of physical activities and they really, our kids only need to find one or two that's going to give them joy and provide the physical movement that their bodies need. Right. And so 
you know, I think as parents, sometimes we have <laughs> expectations of what, like we want our kids to do. We want our kids to play a particular sport cause we did, or, um, or we think that they're good at running and therefore we, they should be, you know, they should do cross country or something. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I think we have to realize that like our kids might be different from what we're expecting and what we're hoping yes. and that we should still like, let them have the choice. Um, I remember like really wanting my son to, to play music forever. Like he, I was really into music and he started playing cello and he was good at it, but he hated it. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I like, it was so hard for me to let him quit when he did want to quit. I mean, you know, we kept him in it for a year or so, but then when he wanted to quit, we let him quit. Cause like, I didn't want to force right. him into it. And I think right. it was the right decision, but I think it's so hard for us sometimes. Cause we have these ideas about what we want our kids to be doing. Um, but I do think it's, it's, it's important to let them have that autonomy. So yeah. Yeah. So, it is a fine line of, but I, I like, I like yeah. the idea of having them choose the activity and also not privileging certain types of activity, especially with physical activity, not privileging, like it has to be a team sport. I mean, as somebody right. who never played team sports and hates team sports and is possibly denying her children the experience <laughs> of team sports because they haven't seemed interested and we haven't volunteered it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just not happening in our house, you know, but like, yep like being open to like, it might not be soccer for every kid and that's really okay. It might be just playing out in the backyard a lot and that might be the thing that they love, you know, or, you know, and maybe that turns into hiking or that turns into bird watching or who knows what, Um, you know, and yeah, I think I've talked before about there's, you know, we have to privilege like outdoorsiness over being an indoor kid. And there's just lots of ways that these other sort of cultural beliefs around what's a like quote healthy way to live impact this mm-hmm. conversation. So mm-hmm. I like the idea of kind of, yeah, making sure it's very child led. Um, but if they do choose it, understanding that there's value to them working through not liking it, you know, every week. Um, yeah. And sticking yes. out the semester, sticking out the six weeks or whatever it is. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's so much, I feel like so many, we have so many hangups that shape like what we think our kids are going to be good at and what we expect of them. Mm-hmm. Like I, um, my son wanted to play soccer and I wanted to like, he, so he also doesn't have depth perception. And I was like, Oh no, I don't want him to play soccer. Cause he'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll be bad at it and he'll feel ashamed and it'll be terrible. But we let him do it and he loves it. Like, and he's not as bad. I mean, he's certainly not as bad as I was. And so like, there was that happening too, where I thought like, I That's should protect him from it. Yeah. And I was totally wrong. Like this is now his joy. Like he loves soccer and it's, I'm not going to tell him that he shouldn't be good. Right. right, right. Eyes, right? Oh, but it's so interesting, so interesting, right? Like all the ways that our own experiences yes. kind of bias our choices and our thoughts about our kids and what they should do. Yes. Yeah. No, definitely. That's, that's a fascinating example where like you are sort of perception and experience, like, yeah, that's, it's, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot for us all to unpack for ourselves and around mm-hmm. our feelings around physical activities in childhood before yeah. we like make choices for our children. I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. Okay. So then steering away a little bit from food and movement, but definitely still about bodies. I wanted to talk about your gender chapter, which is excellent. And you talk a lot in this chapter about the importance of de-emphasizing how we talk about gender with kids. And there's like some really mind-blowing statistics about how often like teachers reference gender in the course of a school day, how often parents reference gender. Um, and I remember when I was reading an earlier draft of the chapter, we had this conversation because I thought, you know, 
like, but wait, I'm a really good feminist mom and I'm raising two girls and I'm raising them to be feminists. So I talk about gender, but in this like very empowering way where, you know, I'll say like, oh, you're a strong girl when my kids do something physical or, um, no, I can't even think of another example, but I certainly reference their gender, but never in like a, you're such a pretty little girl way, like in this very, what I thought of was a very empowering way. And reading your work and then talking to you about it, I've sort of recognized that that is a bit of a trap and that I am still a, assuming that I know what their gender is, which is, you know, not necessarily the case. Um, They should be telling me that. And also that I'm still overemphasizing gender. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about, you know, why gender neutral language is so important with kids of all genders, you know, in terms of fighting this discrimination. Um, and also, I think this very much plays into how they develop a healthy relationship with their body. Yeah. 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 This is a, this is such a complex and nuanced topic. Um, because so I'll start off by saying I, I definitely think it's important to talk to kids about sexism and gender stereotypes. Um, like, we should be talking to our girls about how unfair it is that girls are treated differently from boys. Um, and, and we want to do this because they are seeing this already. Like uh, to give you a example that still makes me angry. Um, a couple of years ago at the end of the school year, my son's teacher gave out like awards for each child, like individualized awards at the end of the year. And I looked at the list and it was so awful how sexist they were. So like, Almost all of the girls got awards for things like looking nice. No. Yeah. No, I'm not kidding. Being kind or being a good listener. And like four of the boys got rewards for being smart. (gasps) It was so, it was just so disturbing. And, and so like kids are noticing things like that, right? They're there. They know. That's just one example. Figured it out. Yeah. Right. So the reality is that these sexist, stereotypes exist in their world too. And they're being communicated to our kids through teachers, the media, like sometimes us inadvertently. And so we, we need to talk about those things so that kids recognize what they are and challenge them. Like we want the girls in that class to realize that when the teacher chose to give out those awards, the way she did, that was reflecting her bias and not reflecting any kind of actual innate difference. Um, And we want, because that's really important for them to be able to ascertain because um, they, they, if we don't, if we don't make that clear to our kids, they really will like the easiest conclusion there is, oh gosh, I guess I'm just not as smart or I'm girls aren't as smart and girls should look nice. And, right. and it so matters that I'm a good listener because I'm a girl and girls. Need right. To be a oh exactly. God, we're just raising them to be like, you know, oh my, yeah. The, the relationship implications of that are horrifying anyway. Oh, I know, oh I know, I know. Right. And, <laughs> and there's, there's research too, that, that has shown that like when, um, when kids are taught that the reason there are fewer female scientists in the world is because of sexism and discrimination, not because girls are less good at science, that girls, those girls who were taught that are then become much more interested in science than girls who are not taught the, the reasons for this, um, discrepancy. So that like, we do, right. Because then it, it gives them the confidence that like they, they realize, oh, these differences are because our culture is screwed up, not because of me or whatever innate ability I have. So screw that. I'm, I'm, I can do this and screw mm-hmm. our culture. Like they, it gives them like more of a, like a fighting instinct. So it is good to talk about discrimination, to talk about sexism, to make our kids aware of it. But, um, and like gender stereotypes. But what's really interesting is, um, when you look into the roots of these gender stereotypes, like where they're coming from, as you 
mentioned in your question, a lot of it has to do with this innocuous language that we use all the time surrounding gender. So as I was saying earlier, like kids are always paying attention to what matters in the world. And that includes like what kinds of social categories matter. They're like little detectives walking around, you know, making observations. Um, and so if you think about it, what is something that we communicate about a person almost every time we refer to them. We don't talk like we don't refer to their hair color or their height Mm -hmm. or their skin color, but we almost always highlight their gender because it's built into our pronouns. And so every time we refer to a person, we're saying he or she or the lady or the man. And when we do this day in and day out, our kids notice it and their, their inference is, well, gosh, gender must be a really important distinction. Like if my parents are referring to it 800 times a day, it must be that boys and girls are different in important ways or else why would you do this? And then you have to, you add into that the fact that there are different bathrooms for different genders, different sports teams, different aisles in the toy store, different clothes, different like toys. At, if you order a happy meal, yeah. all of these things, all they're doing is emphasizing to kids that the two genders are different and they're very different. And so that is, that's like where the problems begin is this idea that we are communicating day in and day out, day out that like, boys and girls are are different in important ways. So then they take that inference and then they look also, again, being these like little detectives, look around the world and they see that there's a gender hierarchy that's very obvious. They see that women, there's never been a woman president, that Mm -hmm. there are fewer women who are CEOs and senators and all sorts of, you know, all the ways in which there is a gender hierarchy in our society And they see that and combine that with this idea that boys and girls are different. And they make this inference that, well, maybe men are just better and smarter. Maybe boys and and men are just better and smarter. And both boys and girls make these, come to these conclusions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There is like, there's one study that like breaks my heart whenever I (laughs) describe it, but um, it was this, a study involving five to seven year old girls and boys. And so the study, basically what it, ends up illustrating is that girls really start internalizing that girls aren't as good as boys when they're about six or seven, which I noticed with my daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, but the study, what the study did, um, is researchers read a story to these boys and girls, um, about a very, very smart protagonist. Like the story had a very, very smart protagonist and that was described that way. Very, very smart. And then the researchers, after reading the story, um, said, okay, well, do you think that that really, really smart protagonist was a boy or was it a girl? And when they asked the five-year-olds, all the girls said, oh, it's a girl. And all the boys said, oh, it's a boy. And that's like exactly what you would expect with in-group, out-group psychology. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you like the group that you belong to. You think they're better. That's that's what you would expect. But um, around the age of six to seven, the girls started switching over and they would say, oh, the really, really smart protagonist is a boy. The boys just always said boys. Of course, but the they girls did. switched yes. over. Of course, they did. <laughs> um, and and that I mean that's just like so heartbreaking that that I mean that is the age so like age six. That's <laughs> what makes me want to say things like "You're a strong girl," right? Because I think I'm subverting that stereotype that my daughter may have already internalized. But it sounds like I'm also reinforcing it because I'm saying like it could be interpreted as like "You're strong for a girl" or yeah. like you. You are a girl who happens to be strong, unlike other girls around you or some, like that's, that's sort of the sticky part of it, right? Yeah, that's exactly the sticky part. I think, I mean, the way I think about this distinction is I try to not call attention to gender when gender is not 
part of the conversation I'm having with my child. Like Mm -hmm. if we're talking about just like people doing something and it happens to be a girl or happens to be, I I try to de-emphasize gender and not refer to it when it's not relevant, but I have plenty of conversations, um, especially with my daughter about like sexism and Mm -hmm. about, and, and when I'm doing that, I certainly am talking about gender and I'm certainly saying like, you can do anything you want, even though the world might tell you otherwise and, and things like that, where I'm, I'm trying to like push against, but yeah, I guess I don't say like, you're a really strong girl. I'll just be like, I'll just, I don't know. Maybe I probably do actually. Um, but I mean, I guess I might say things like you, you know, you are really strong you can and you say can you're do... a strong kid. You're a tough kid. Exactly. You're a strong, like you're there's no kid. reason, like the more I think about it, there's no reason to use girl there. I don't like, think my kid falls is. down on the playground and has, and is getting over a scraped knee or something. I can just say you're a tough, yeah. you know, you're a tough kid. Like right. I don't have to say you're a tough girl. Like it's so right. weird that I do that now that, <laughs> now that we've had this conversation. But if you're in the middle of a conversation about sexism, right. um, then, then it's different and you might, you might be referring to the fact that she's a girl because she, I mean, she is one. Sexism, sexism is yes. going to affect her and she's right. got to, you know, recognize it and see, see it for what it is instead of, you know, and make the wrong interpretation that she's not as good or not good enough. Yeah, in some yeah, way. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really hard. But it's also too, I mean, it's just reinforcing the binary when I do that. It's, you know, it is yeah. assuming that again, like that my three-year-old is a girl between I mean, she has identified to us as a girl, but like, you know, it's not creating a lot of air in the room for other genders who are not represented at all in these binaries. Like when we're talking about this whole, that's true too. This yes. whole hierarchy, uh, you know, that they're, they're nowhere in the hierarchy. And so there's that, you know, there's that whole piece of it too, as a reason to sort of like ease off the girl power rhetoric. Um, yes, that's yeah. another very good reason too, as but, well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just, that really made me think, um, it was a really helpful chapter. <laughs> it made me rethink, rethink this language. And I remember early on being like, no, Melinda, I have to tell them they're strong girls. How else will they know? And then, you know, the more we talked about it and the way you explain it, it's just, it's useful to interrogate where that's coming from and where, um, yeah. And how that's actually possibly counterproductive. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Mm. Um, well, this was great. This is a great conversation. And why don't we wrap up by you telling my listeners where they can find your work? Of course, everybody needs to go pre-order the book right now. I am linking to it in the transcript um, and it is out on Tuesday. So you don't have a lot of time, but you should get your pre-order in. You can buy it once it's out too, but pre-orders are helpful. Yes. Pre-orders are awesome. They really make a difference. Um, but yes, so uh I think what might be easiest if I just give my website, because if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, which is on Substack, there is like a, a sign up um, link mm-hmm. on my website. It's just melindawennermoyer.com. Mm-hmm. It also has links to information about the book and pre-order links and all of those things. Um, but that's like a good one-stop shop. I would yes. imagine. And I'm assuming uh, there's information about your book events on there too, for folks who want to check yes. that out. Yes, so, there yes. Is. but we will link to your Substack as well and your Instagram, which is also very helpful. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was fun. <laughs>